From the hills of central New York and in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Dr. Clark Throssell, former professor at Purdue University, former director of research for the GCSA, now owner-operator of Turfgrass R&D based in Montana and a proud member of the USGA Research Committee. Clark received his master's at Penn State University and his PhD at Kansas State with Professor Bob Carroll, where they experimented three decades ago on using remote sensing to determine turfgrass water status. Clark has had an illustrious career from many different perspectives, first as an academic at Purdue, then in a trade association, and now with the fertilizer industry. I sat down with Clark recently to discuss the arc of his career as he enters his fifth decade of supporting the turfgrass industry. As with all our Frankly Speaking episodes, we're grateful to our partners at Triject and Intellicro. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Clark Drossel. What a great joy to talk to you from the High Plains, our, our turfgrass High Plains drifter, Clark. Uh, I wanted to start by talking to you about, you know, this is going to be a conversation about the arc of your career. And I know, I know you well enough that you're not entirely comfortable with that. So let me start out with what's a kid who goes to the University of Montana? I don't know what your major was. And then you go to Western Pennsylvania to study with Joe Deutsch and join the sort of bank grass craze that was going on in the early 1980s. Yeah, Frank, when you, when you put it in those terms, it makes me think I, I am the luckiest guy ever. And uh, every, I have just had a wonderful career, and it all really started for me by going to Penn State. And, and I must uh, confess that uh, when I made that decision to go to Penn State, I knew very little about Penn State other than that they had a, a very fine turf program. I had worked on a golf course maintenance crew for as a summer job when I was in high school and college, and I enjoyed turf, and the, the superintendent I worked for, Don Polson, you know, I got interested in turf, and I decided I would want to go get my master's so I could eventually become a golf course superintendent, and he had heard of a few turf programs, and one of which was Penn State, so I applied and uh, was accepted, and so I said, what the heck, you know, I'd never been, at that time, I'd never been further east than uh, South Dakota, <laughs> I'd been up and down the western United States, but never further east than South Dakota, so I figured, what the heck, I'll just give it a shot, and man, it, it things couldn't have worked out better. I couldn't agree more, Clark, and I know uh, Don Tolson Jr. now see him around uh, a little bit. So it is, I didn't know about your roots with Don, but I want to talk about the roots you have uh, in the program with Joe Deutsch. You, you get there and I, you know, I don't know how many people still look back at your thesis, but I spent time looking back at your thesis and, and there you are, you show up bright eyed and bushy tails out, out of Montana. And they say, here, go work on this mowing height, nutrient use, green speed project, I'm assuming it piqued your interest right away just because of the practical nature of it. But it's so interesting to look back and see your mowing heights and nitrogen rates. Uh, what was that like when you first got there? It was state of the art. and Now you've watched the industry progress to they'll cut greens at 80 thousandths of an inch. It was amazing, Frank, to be involved because... I started at Penn State in 1978, and that was when the stip meter was first coming out. The USGA was first introducing it, and so they had some information on putting green speed and by their agronomists using the stip meter, taking putting green speed measurements on golf courses during their consulting visits. 
But really, the USGA had approached Joe Dewich about doing more research, and so I think Joe is intrigued by it. Of course, he was obviously, as you said earlier, fascinated with bent grass and putting greens, and he jumped in, and so it was just a, a great project because, like you said, it was very practical, very applied. We would talk about things, but he gave me, as a graduate student, he gave me a lot of freedom to explore the things uh, mm-hmm. that I thought were important, and so we went after it, and uh, it was really just a lot of fun, and it was a great great project. I learned so much in it. To have that in my background, it has helped me so much throughout my career. And and that's exactly where I wanted to go next, Clark, because you were there literally at the first use or testing of the stint meter with the sort of guru of the bent grasses, right? All the development he's done over the years and everything with a pen name on it that comes out of there. And then you see where we are today, where, you know, you'll have green speeds that are expected now in the 11 to 13 feet range. When you were sort of testing it, it was in the 7.5 to 9.5 feet range. Occasionally, you could get to 11 if you cut it two thirty seconds of an inch three times a day. So looking back, gosh, how much has it changed for you? Yeah, it's been unbelievable because when I first got into uh, late 70s like that, you know, 3 sixteenths was a pretty reasonable mowing height, common mowing height, gave everybody, you know, pretty good turf. And the speeds, like you say, were probably in the 7 and 8-foot range. And I remember as part of my research, I spent a week in the Pittsburgh area going to about 25 golf courses and, and just measuring the speed of their greens. And one of the courses we went to was Oakmont, and Paul Latshaw Sr. was there, and he could not have been more uh, welcoming and friendly and interested. And here I was, you know, this graduate student, I'm not really sure about everything I was doing, but he was the nicest guy and took the time, showed us around, and he let us measure the speed on his greens, and they were about uh, 10 feet, 6 inches, which at that time was kind of off the charts, and now, you know, 10-6 is common for, uh, you know, many, many uh, golf courses around the country. So, And then to see the mowing heights where we are today, you know, mowing at 5.30 seconds was 3.30 seconds was pretty darn low. And uh, I mowed some turf at 2.30 seconds of an inch in research plots and quickly converted that turf to moss, um, <laughs> which, which I think we've learned along the way. But now to see where people mow day in, day out is just staggering to me and uh, not quite sure how we do it, but we do it and it works and my hat is off to superintendents. And again, I would say a lot of what you're talking about, those advances probably could be put at things like firmer surfaces, maybe more frequent sand top dressing, rolling, better mowers, right? Understanding of floating heads, fixed heads. All you had, I remember back in the day, they would put cinder blocks on top of the Jake 22s to get the weight down so they could skin them. And of course, in Pittsburgh, well known for its fast greens, right? I mean, that's when you go to Western Pennsylvania, that's what it's about. It's all about fast greens out there. Now, you leave Penn State, Western Pennsylvania, and then you go and take a very different tact at Kansas State with Bob Caro, working on something now, Clark, that's also very interestingly not evolved as far <laughs> from when you did your PhD. So you went out to K-State, and that, of course, is where Bob Caro started before he finished his career at the University of Georgia, and you worked on 
canopy reflectance and temperature measurements to determine uh, more efficient ways to irrigate. What was that like going from a very sort of applied project measuring stimp and mowing and doing stuff to going to in the early 80s, which again was way ahead of its time, uh, that sort of spectral stuff? It was great, to put it briefly. I had a great experience at Penn State, and I had a great experience at Kansas State. Very different in in lots of ways, and as a student, to me, that's really what you should be after. And so, as you said, I did an applied project for my research for my master's degree and did a a little bit more toward the basic side, but more scientifically oriented for my Ph.D., and that was a really good experience. It was a great experience for me to be in the transition zone, get a little experience with warm season grasses with growing turf in an entirely uh, different climate. So that was a big uh, help to me. But the project I worked on at K-State with Bob Carroll was uh, really exciting and very fun, uh, learned a, a great deal. And as you said, the principle was to monitor plant temperature, canopy temperature, as an indicator of stress, water stress. And as plants dry out, the evapotranspiration slows down, the cooling process of the plant slows down, and canopy temperature rises. So the principle was well known by the time I got there, and I think we were one of the first people to try to use these principles in turf, and it was really fun, enjoyed it. It's one of those things I wish I could have uh, carried on and and tried to uh, really fine-tune it and, and make it work, because I think the principle's really sound, and I think it could be helpful, right. at least in certain parts of the country. I think that concept of using canopy temperature as an indicator of plant stress works better in the uh, areas of the country that have lower humidity and lots of sunny days. That's right. And I I also think that, you know, you sit on the research committee with another leader in this industry about uh, spectral stuff. That's Dale Bremer, who's been a, a guest on this program before with his background in meteorology. Uh, you know, the NDVI development and ground truthing of things, no matter what we're doing. And Gerald Henry's been on the program. We've been talking about this, Clark. You were there, you know, right at the beginning of this. And it's very interesting. Dale's still working on it. Gerald Henry's uh, doing a fair amount. There still needs to be a significant amount of ground truing, it seems to me, before this stuff is useful. Although surface temperature that you worked on that we now measure with FLIR cameras is probably something that could be more widely used. And what's interesting, you have FLIR cameras, you have the pushing ground sensors, and you have the TDR sensors in the ground. You have wired and wireless sensors we could put out there. And can I ask you, why aren't we using these technologies more to improve our water management? I mean, you look at golf courses like I do. There still aren't many that are anywhere past just soil moisture. No one's really still embraced the idea of imagery or sensing as a way to determine water use. Now, I'm sure there is an exception. It probably are some early adopters who are doing it very well. But would you agree with me that it's not still widely used? And if so, why? I do agree with you that it is not widely used. It's been a, uh, I guess, a fr- probably a frustration a little bit for uh, turf grass scientists. I know it's something as a USGA research committee, we would sure like to see golf courses adopt these technologies more. I think a couple reasons, Frank, strike me as why the golf industry hasn't adopted these technologies. A couple things come to mind. First is, I think what you said a little bit, uh, the ground truthing 
perhaps we need to do more of that to gain the confidence of superintendents. And then that kind of leads me to the next point. I think superintendents, and I don't blame them because, let's face it, their career is on the line. And, you know, to jump in with both feet uh, and really put your faith behind some of this technology, that's a big leap. And I I think superintendents are reluctant to uh, take that leap. And I think what we need to do as an industry is to start working more closely with a few select golf courses one-on-one to a very high degree to build the confidence in the sensors and the data that comes from them. And then the superintendent can rely on that data and then see where it takes them and be able to, you know, live with a mistake or two because it's not perfect. All this sensing is not perfect. And so I think we just have to build that confidence. And to me, that comes with a lot of uh, one-on-one uh, work to get people so they are comfortable with the technology, with the data that comes from it, mm-hmm. and then uh, how to use that data. Mm-hmm. And uh, as scientists, we, we're really data-focused people, mm-hmm. and we like the data, and I know I do. I'm guilty of this, but interpreting the data and using the data, maybe we haven't done as good a job as scientists as we need to. I couldn't agree more. I I do think that, and you know, I'm barking about this all the time, the data-driven approach to to managing our surfaces is still slow on the uptake. I mean, we do degree days, we have some data that we're using, and I think there's a couple of things going on, Clark. My perspective is, number one, no one's really come up with a good way to manage all this data that's coming in from the climate to the playing surface to the soil issues to the clipping volumes to the chemical use and intervals to degree days, the water management stuff. There may still have to be a couple of systems you've got to look at to get your data, uh, disease risk models, insect emergence models. You, you know what I'm saying, that there's this right. enormous amount of data that first off, you're right, we haven't worked closely enough with people to figure out where can I put it at all in at least one or two places that I could refer to it, understand it, synthesize it, and make a decision. I, I think that's one thing. And I think there's this reluctance till that what you said is very telling. I don't believe anybody's going to give the keys over to any of the decisions they have to make completely. But I hope that over time we're able to do enough research and figure out ways to get extension people to work to implement these things, like the GCSA faculty to implement these things, because I do agree it has to be a one-on-one thing for them to know it's going to enhance their decision-making, not replace it. Right. I think that's a key thing to emphasize, that this is a another tool to help you make good decisions. Frank, I, I found it interesting, one of the, you know, as you were listing all those tools that are out there related to technology, whether it's a disease forecasting uh, model, or if it's growing degree days for uh, annual bluegrass seed head suppression, or apply your pre-emergent you know, for crabgrass control. All these things are, I think, are very valuable and are very good. I think sometimes, Frank, you and I forget, uh, turf scientists in general, beyond you and I, but turf scientists in general, forget that superintendents, their job is much different than being a turf scientist. And one of my uh, close friends here in Billings is a superintendent, and I'm always struck by the fact that starting at, you know, 6 a.m., to about 10 or 11 a.m., it is all hands on deck to get the golf course ready for play that day. Mm-hmm. And so my friend who's the superintendent, Joe is his name, Joe and his staff, 
that's what they're focused on, you know, in that four-hour, five-hour time frame mm-hmm. is getting the course ready for play for that day. And they don't have the time to look at all these great tools that are out there and all this data that, that might be available to them mm-hmm. because their life is really focused on the play that day as well it should be. Exactly right. I mean, I think what you described is the dilemma, and that's why if it's ever going to get adopted, it has to be made so that over time that data makes more sense. And they don't, we may not be making any changes day to day, but over time what it does is it shows trends. And that's what you and I know they can really interpret are the trends uh, that occur. Maybe that kind of information's out there, and maybe it needs to be aggregated better, but I think that's kind of what's missing is some way that data is simply entered into very readable, easy-to-understand graphs. At least that's what, you know, I would like. (laughs) Um, And then... Like you say, you look at the trends, not just the pinpoint of today, but you look at the trends. And I think uh, if we can get to that stage, I think that would be a, uh, a really a big step forward. I have the pleasure of chatting with my friend, Clark Throssell, from the high plains of the United States. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back after a message from our sponsors at Dryject and Intelligro. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject. The only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest dryject service center. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I'm here with Clark Throssell, and we're doing an arc of his career. You know, I know you well enough that it was probably a hard decision to leave Purdue, especially I know how much you value teaching and continue to teach uh, seminars over the years. And then you took on the research director's role at GCSAA. And I would really say that one of the most significant things that that organization has contributed to sort of better understanding environmentally are those environmental profiles that you did with the Environmental Institute for Golf. And I know our uh, mutual friend and another happy, happy guy, Greg Lyman, uh, and Wendy and Larry at Pace uh, were very instrumental in this. I want you to talk a little bit about the genesis of it, that project, and and what you learned from doing it. 
Sure. I'd be happy to talk about it. I, I agree with you, Frank, in, in terms of putting it in perspective. I think it, it was and, and hopefully will continue to be an important project that the Environmental Institute for Golf continues. And the genesis of it was we, including superintendents and university scientists and industry people, when we would talk about golf and how it was impacting the environment, we quickly came to realize that people might point their finger at the golf industry and say, oh, golf courses use huge amounts of fertilizer or huge amounts of pesticides or huge amounts of water. And we didn't think that was necessarily true, but we sure didn't have any hard data to refute those statements. And so we found ourselves in a, an awkward situation in that people would take shots at the golf industry, at golf courses and their maintenance, yet other than a few anecdotal stories, we didn't really have any hard data to try to put some facts into these discussions rather than people's perceptions. And people who are anti-golf had their perceptions. People who are mm-hmm. pro-golf mm-hmm. Uh, had their perceptions, but there was no data. And so that was the genesis of the Environmental Profile Project. And it was pretty significant, Clark, because, you know, this is an industry that, I don't know, I know they share information, but you can imagine some trepidation with some of the questions you were asking about Things that like water and nutrient and pesticides, for example, the the sort of controversial nature uh, of asking some of those questions, I I couldn't agree more how important it, it is to do. And you and I know it's really only as good as the data that you collect. So what were the conversations around the table navigating the way to do the survey? You touched on a lot of the, the as you call them, trepidations, and, and that's right. And, and I think that to some degree, some of those trepidations are still with us, particularly uh, one that we found was really uh, pretty sensitive was the water question and just of how many gallons or acre feet, whatever the number is, of water do you use in a year. People were really reluctant to uh, share that, or some people were reluctant to share that, thinking, well, I don't want people to know what I'm doing because if regulations do come down the road, you know, I don't want people to say that, well, we know you're using this much, now you need to use 10% less. Mm -hmm. And so there was some concerns about that, and I think that maybe some of that still exists, although hopefully to a a lesser extent. We just decided, I, I think, just to be right up front and ask the hard questions, because again, people who were opposed to golf in in some form or fashion, you know, we just said if we're going to ever have a chance to counteract those concerns that are raised, we need hard data. And so that was our point, and that's what we stuck with. And so we just decided, hey, we'll just ask the difficult questions and get the responses, and then we'll, we'll go from there. And so when you embarked upon the work, you had, I mean, these were enormous undertakings for, for the folks uh, listening that aren't aware of the environmental profiles. There's five of them, I believe? Yes. From energy and wildlife, uh, water, nutrients, pesticides, you know, the gamut of aspects that the golf course touches from an environmental perspective that it's useful to have the data. And in fact, like like you said, it's it's good that they did it, but it's even better that they're keeping up with it, right? They're revisiting uh, some of this. So I'd like to actually ask you about some of that. Now that you were there in the beginning, you've seen some of the, you know, the changes there. There has been less water use. There has been less nutrients nutrient use. Some people throw it out that, well, there's fewer golf courses, so there's got to be fewer people doing these things. So looking back now, and I'm assuming you're a little bit familiar, I'm sure you had a personal interest in in looking at the follow-up data, though it didn't make it into scientific literature, I think, to the extent that the first round did. Uh, Looking back, uh, how, how are we doing? 
I, I have followed it, but not to a uh, really detailed level. And it, it is interesting, you know, and I think some of what you said, that the surveys did show that there was a reduction in water use or a reduction in nutrient use, and, and I think that's good. I, one of the things that um, maybe has gotten lost a little bit in the profile project was our original intent was to use the data and identify where the golf industry can improve and then develop you know, specific programs that would address areas that needed attention. And that's, of course, a difficult thing to do. And, and I don't know the degree that the industry has been able to, you know, utilize the data maybe as fully as we could. But that was one of the goals was to, hey, if we identify a weakness, then we need to work on it. And so I think those challenges will continually uh, be with us. And I think it's not eliminating resources, but to me, it's it's using them efficiently while still providing a quality playing surface that golfers want to spend their money and, and come and play and enjoy. And one of the ways we've been using that data, Clark, is we know what is normal use or average use of these resources or average aspects of these profiles, energy use, nutrient use, pesticide use. What we've been doing with some of our state park partners that we work here with in New York State is saying, well, here's a northeast average of these things. Where are we? Are we above? Are we below? I mean, I don't believe that it's very complicated to work with this data. All you have to do is look at them. I mean, as an industry, it's good, you know, at the We Are Golf Days and the National Golf Day on the Hill. Now, having that data is giving them credibility, no doubt. But since I like chatting with superintendents and we just spend a bunch of time talking about spectral stuff and why it's hard for superintendents, I'd like to chat with you a little bit about using this data the way I talked about, just looking at but region by region. You know, you're, you're, you're in the inner mountain region uh, that was probably part of the survey separated out. Where are you on this? Do you know how much water you use? Do you know how much nutrient you use? And I think, Clark, therein lies the problem. I'm not entirely sure everybody's aware of the numbers of the resources that they use. Would you like to comment? Yeah, I'm happy to comment, and I, I agree generally with what you say on several fronts. One is I like your approach for using the data because, let's be honest, the data is averages for broad regions. And I, as a golf course looks at that average number, let's just pick water use as an example, well, there might be valid reasons that that golf course is above that average, or it might be valid reasons that the golf course is below that average, but that's where the uh, investigation and, and homework needs to come in. And so I think that's a great way to use the data is say, hey, this is the average, where are we? And perhaps there's reasons we're valid reasons we're above it, but maybe there are some reasons that are not valid and, and we should implement some things to come in line. Yeah, well, let, let me give you a, a very concrete example. I mean, if you look at the way you regionalize the data and you look out in the western part of the United States where they're reliant on irrigation just to have a playing surface, you're going to see their water use over the charts, but you'll see pesticide use except for herbicides at a very low a level of use. So if I was in the Southeast, I wouldn't want to compare myself to water use in the Northeast and in Mid-Atlantic. Clark, it's been raining since August. We're ready to build an arc here. I can't right. believe anybody that takes survey data on irrigation over the 2018 growing season in my neck of the woods 
is going to be asked, why on earth would you buy an irrigation system? So I do think it's important to look at the regionality of it because we're going to use more pesticides in the Northeast than they are in the Southwest. And so, you know, I look at it like, gosh, we did a lot of work. There's a lot of data. And I do think we fail sometimes. And I'm going to put myself in that category. And that's partly why I do these interviews, because this is a voice to get out there and say, listen, that data is out there. You live in a region. Just go look at what everybody is the average use in your region and see how you shake out. It doesn't seem to me to be that hard to do. And yet I, I don't see a lot of people approaching it like that yet. I agree with you. A lot of people are uh, not using the data that way. And again, I think maybe that's a shortcoming that the emphasis was on the doing the surveys, getting the data back, compiling the data, issuing the reports. And then maybe the, there has not been a great enough follow-up on to say, hey, here's how an average, you know, any superintendent can use this data to their advantage. And perhaps that's where uh, we could have done a, a better job making those connections that you just described and, and giving people the means and the tools and a direction of, hey, here's all this data and here's how you might use it. As we wrap up this segment, Clark, I wanted to ask you back to the arc of your career, right? You, you left a, uh, as many people would describe, a comfortable academic position in a really strong program. I do you know, I could think of the reasons to leave Riker there, but but we'll leave that aside. Uh, we'll leave that <laughs> we'll leave that aside for now. But separate from leaving Riker, you know, you you, you know, you left a pretty good uh, program, a really great program, uh, in a sort of a great position. Went to the industry and and worked in a trade association, and and now you're on the other side. And we're going to pick this up in the next segment. But I'd like to talk for a second what those two different experiences sort of have taught you about uh, this industry. The one thing I will say, I think it, it has been uh, very good for me to uh, experience uh, turf from lots of different perspectives, from the academic perspective and then from a, a trade association, a nonprofit you know, organization. And then now uh, in working for myself, you know, working for some of my clients, my clients are in business for-profit enterprises. And so the three have been a really good experience for me. One thing I I will tell you I've learned, I sure appreciate the roles that everybody serves in our industry Mm -hmm. and that we all have a job to do and we all have something we can contribute. And so that has been really driven home for me. And so uh, that has been uh, a learning experience. Uh, working for GCSA, I sure I really admire superintendents and what they do, and that was just driven home uh, even more during my time mm-hmm. at GCSAA. I really admire superintendents and what they do and the product that they produce uh, every day. And they they have a difficult job there. <laughs> There's no doubt about it, and so I really admire that. So, like I say, it's been good for me, and I've enjoyed it to have, I think of them in my mind as, you know, three kind of separate experiences, but with a lot of overlap, and it, that has been uh, a, a really good thing for me to, to learn and to see different sides of the turf industry. Well, Clark, let's take a break. I'm with Clark Throssel from Montana. I'm Frank Rossi, and we'll be right back after our message from our friends at Dryject and Intelligro. Finally, a fungicide that's so much more. Civitas Turf Defense is a fungicide, insecticide, and plant protection product that will change the way you look at turf management. Civitas Turf Defense works within the plant to control diseases and pests, reducing requirements for fertilizers and other pesticides. 
By enhancing stress tolerance, Civitas Turf Defense can reduce water inputs by up to 25% while maintaining acceptable turf quality. Civitas also increases abiotic stress tolerance for improved tolerance to wear and traffic. And with no known resistance issues, there's no worry about maximum yearly application restrictions. Civitas Turf Defense, plant protection redefined. There's more to the story. Visit CivitasTurf.com. Golf course superintendents all agree. Traditional core aeration is time-consuming, labor-intensive, and unpopular with golfers. Dryject is a revolutionary service that relieves compaction, increases water infiltration, improves gas exchange, and amends your root zone all at the same time, leaving the turf surface smooth and immediately playable. Best of all, an independent Dryject service professional does it for you, there and gone before you know it. Dryject, the only process in the world that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass. Visit dryject.com to locate your nearest Dryject service center. All right, Clark, let's start a little bit about your work with the folks at uh, Peaks and Prairies and Lori Russell. And that's got to be a great joy in your career, too, working with the turfgrass managers in that part of the world. Without a doubt, it is. And it's been something I, I have really enjoyed being uh, involved with the Peaks and Prairies Association, serving as their technical resources, what they call me. But I guess I'm their uh, local turf extension specialist since there's no turf programs in Montana or Wyoming. And so the superintendents call or email. And to be honest, growing turf in, in Montana and Wyoming uh, is pretty easy, pretty straightforward, uh, as long as you have ample water. Yeah. And, you alluded to earlier, mm-hmm. in our part of the country, if you don't irrigate it, you're not going to have much to play off Well, of. and let me interrupt you there. The thing that fascinated me about the front range is the amount of watering they have to do in the winter. By all means, it's that's unbelievable. one of our uh, yeah, bigger concerns is uh, winter desiccation. And although this past winter was uh, one of the uh, exceptions, we had snow cover, at least where I'm at mm-hmm. in Montana, in the Billings area. But I think through most of the region, we had uh, good snow cover most of the winter and so did not have to do that. But typically, our winters are open and cold and dry and windy. And so we can have days, you know, that won't be hot by any means, but it might be in the upper 30s, low 40s with a strong wind and lots of sun. And desiccation will occur. So the superintendents have been very creative about figuring out ways to water efficiently during the winter months by just tanking water out to greens and then a pump on the tank and then just water with a hose and make it work. And it's it's an important management tool out here. It's so interesting. Creative is the word, right? It's not like you open up the research journals and find a lot of research on winter turf irrigation. In fact, when Bill Kreiser, my former student, got out to Nebraska and they had that hellacious desiccation about five or six years ago uh, that wiped out a fair amount of grass in the Great Plains, there isn't a lot of work in this area. They are having to be creative. And that is a, a really shining part of the characters of most of the superintendents, wouldn't you say? By all means, superintendents 
superintendents are very creative and I think by their nature are problem solvers every day. They're solving problems uh, big and small. And so this is just one that they have figured out. And, and I agree, there is not a great deal of research data or documentation of this problem. But through experience, they figured out that, hey, we need to water occasionally during the winter. And they have figured out how to do it and how to make it work. And my hat's off to them. And so now I want to talk to you about your work with Lebanon Fertilizer. I have the pleasure of having met the leadership of that company. And I work with Chris Gray uh, every year on the TV program that they sponsor at uh, GCSA Live. I know it's a family-owned company still in in Pennsylvania. I I know from working with them, committed to the kinds of values that I'm sure would resonate with a guy like you. There's something about being small, family-owned still, and committed to research and science-based decision-making and product development. Uh, Let me ask you about the research you're doing with them. I saw you publish some work on uh, granule pickup. Can you talk about that stuff for a second? Yeah, I sure can. But before I do that, Frank, I just want to say I agree 100% with everything you said about Lebanon Turf. They are a great company, a great leadership. Kathy Bishop is the president and owner and really fine people uh, from Kathy on, on down. Mm-hmm. And it has been uh, a real joy and a pleasure for me to work with them. And so that aside, the work that you're referring to was fertilizer granule pickup from putting greens after fertilization, and really the research came from concerns that superintendents had that if I spread a granular fertilizer on my putting green today, and then I water it in as I'm supposed to, and then I'd probably uh, water, you know, tonight, then the question was, how much of that fertilizer do I pick up tomorrow when I, when I mow? Because the last thing anybody wants to do is put it down a fertilizer today and pick up most of it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And so we did this research. Actually, we funded the research. The uh, universities did it, uh, Rutgers, uh, Purdue, and the University of Florida did the research. And really, we found out that following the protocol of apply the fertilizer today, water it in a little bit, water it again tonight, and then mow tomorrow, we found out that very, very minor amounts of fertilizer are picked up. Overall, it was something in the 1% to 2% range. And so we feel... Lebanon turf feels that from an agronomic and an economic point of view, that is a very minimal loss and it will not affect turf performance. And that loss certainly isn't going to impact somebody's fertilizer expenditure. So it was really, you know, one of those straightforward projects, but it was really a lot of fun to be part of. And so you find yourself in a role, I'm assuming a a technical role where you're the scientific resource for a fertilizer company. We'll just talk about it in general. So you're advocating, uh, I mean, in some ways, you know, you and and I know Tom Fermani and also another guy I just love to death with the other color shirts that you guys get to wear. Uh, You can tell I'm, I'm pining for one of those shirts. Can you tell I'm, I'm waiting for <laughs> Lebanon? I got socks from Chris uh, at the show, but you know, that's not as good as those shirts. So I'm, I'm, I'm pining for one of those shirts, but back to the thing I wanted to ask you that, you know, you're advocating, you're with a company, you're using science, but at the end of the day, they're a for-profit company. I mean, you're there to sort of support the sales and things that they're doing. Has that been tricky to get used to doing that, not having done it before? Uh, There was a a bit of a learning curve, uh, without a doubt, for me, and that has been one of the really positive things and one of the really good things that I have learned, uh, as you call it, through the arc of my career. And and I I say this jokingly, but there is a great amount of truth to it because, well, there's a huge 100% true that if you're in private business, and I I don't care what you're 
private business is, a golf course. Say it's a golf course that's uh, privately owned, open for play. If you're not selling something every single day, you are not going to be in business for very long. That is one of those real eye-opening realizations for me that I guess I maybe sort of knew, but I didn't really appreciate fully until I started working for uh, Lebanon Turf, and then I worked for Golfdom as well, Mm -hmm. and they are obviously a a private business, and so they need to be profitable uh, long-term, and to do that, you need to be selling products on a consistent basis, and so like I say, that has been a really good experience for me, and one of those things, I, like I say, I think I always knew, but to have that uh, more front and center has been good, and, and again, it makes me appreciate the role that everybody has in the, in the turf industry. And so, you know, Clark, as we wrap up, your broad perspective on your career, having worked in academics and in trade associations and now in the private sector, you know, you're the perfect person to sit on the USGA Research Committee. And so I want to take our conversation at the end to something that you and I share, which is I was uh, the visiting young scientist in the mid-1990s, and now you're the permanent old guy on the Research Committee. And there was a collection of those permanent old guys on there, of course, the one most near and dear to my heart still is Paul Riki and, and Ali Haravandi. Uh, you know, I just, I'd pay to take those trips just to travel around with those guys. So first off, I'll start out by asking you, how did you get involved? And then we'll talk about what a joy it is to be involved. Thanks for talking about this part of my uh, career because I've really enjoyed it. And it has been the most rewarding and enjoyable thing I have done in my uh, entire career. And I feel I've probably had my greatest contributions to the turf industry by serving on the USGA Research Committee. And I got involved on a couple of occasions. My first occasion was in the early 90s. I served as the, I guess, the young scientist uh, role that they had at that time. And so I served on the committee a couple of years in the early 90s thoroughly enjoyed it. I learned so much, and particularly someone at the start of their career. Mm-hmm. It was really a, mm-hmm. an eye-opening experience and a valuable experience, and so grateful for that. And then when I transitioned to GCSAA, one of the positions on the USGA Research Committee was for the research director of GCSAA, which is me. And so as a uh, GCSAA staff member, I served on the USGA Research Committee. And then when things uh, ended at GCSAA, the USGA Research Committee, Mike Kenna and Kim Arusha were kind enough to invite me to continue. And so for about the last eight years or so, I have served as a volunteer on the research committee. And it has just, like I say, it is just a fantastic experience. And really the discussions at the committee meetings, you learn so much from your colleagues on the committee. And then making the site visits to the universities where the projects are being conducted and to talk to those scientists, to have the opportunity to talk to our peers, our colleagues, one-on-one as you're standing on their research plots or you're standing in their lab and to see the work the research in in progress, and to ask questions. It has just been really a remarkable experience, and I have just learned so much. It's it's been a joy. Clark, what a pleasure chatting with you, my friend. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on Frankly Speaking. It has gone by much more quickly than I even thought it was going to go by uh, (laughs) our time together, and I wish you nothing but the best. As your career continues, we've agreed, uh, will continue. 
for the foreseeable future, Clark. Thanks very much for joining me. Well, thank you, Frank. It's been uh, great to be part of it. Uh, if there's something in the future that you think would fit, invite me back. I'd be uh, happy to be a, a guest again. Dr. Clark Drossel is former professor at Purdue University, former director of research for the GCSAA, now owner-operator of Turfgrass R&D based in Montana. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at DryJack, the only machine that aerates, top dresses, and amends in one pass, and Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Frankly Speaking is recorded and produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to program manager Eleanor Geddes, marketing and business management John Kiger, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.